Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at AntiochATX.com. Now here's Pastor J.D. Griffin. We are in the middle of a series that we're calling Love Your Neighbor. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at the words of Jesus to us from Mark 12, verse 30. And it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And so we've been looking at the complexity that we run into when we really start thinking about loving our neighbor. And we've been using the image of a Lego house, right? Legos are built, Lego houses are built one step at a time, and it's clear, and it's simple, and it's actually not complex. But when that Lego house gets broken, the reconstruction of what was once simple becomes almost impossible. And what we've been leaning into is that when God created the heavens and the earth, he looked at what he had created and he said, it is good. What God created was good. And before sin entered the world, life was not complicated. It was not confusing. There was no chaos. There was no pain. There was no lies. It was good, peaceful. God provided everything and anything that Adam and Eve needed. But what happened was, is when sin entered the world in one second, all that God had constructed, sin destroyed. And what we live in today is in the reality of leaning into the heart of God, believing for the instruction manual of heaven to begin to see him reconstruct what sin has deconstructed. And what we found is that the journey of reconstruction is loaded with lots of tension. The journey of reconstruction is loaded with lots of tension, meaning that when we start to actually love our neighbors we will come face to face with the confusion, the complexity, and the pain that fuels the distance that is between us. And over the past couple of weeks, we've been leaning into a few of these tensions, like the tension of how do I love my neighbors, not just the neighbor that I like. Like, how do I actually love my neighbors and not just the neighbor that's similar, right? Because we're drawn to similar. We're not drawn to different. So, so how do we love all of our neighbors, right? And, and we leaned in to this tension by saying it's going to take intention and it's going to take humility for us to begin to love all our neighbors and not just some of our neighbors that are similar to us. And we last week talked about the tension 
of how do we love our neighborhoods, that God has placed me, he's placed you in places so that we can be a light of hope, a good seed sower, a kingdom of heaven bringer. But, but there's a tension around how does that really happen at my work or at my school or in the middle of the chaos of little kids and youth sports. And so we talked about how living the kingdom does not stop on Sunday after church, but it starts on Monday. And what we have found over and over again is that God is showing us that although we are going to encounter tension, our earthly tensions should not overtake heaven's intention. Can I say that again? Our earthly tensions should not overtake heaven's intention. Tensions. And here is the intention of God. First Timothy 2, verse 6. It says, who? And this who here is speaking of God. It says, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. This is the heart of God, that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So I want you to hear me say the heart of God is that all people would be saved. Not some people, not similar people, but all people would come to the saving knowledge of the truth. And this morning, we want to look at another one of these earthly tensions. And that is the tension between being loving and not affirming. The tension of being loving and not affirming. And and what I want to do is I want to do my best this morning to navigate us through the minefield of thoughts, feelings, and experiences to bring some biblical clarity and maybe a little bit of healing and hope around the LGBTQ conversation that at times is consuming our culture. And here is why I want to talk about this now in the middle of our Love Your Neighbor series. First, let me say to anyone here or anyone that you know or anyone in your family, that's been hurt, bullied, yelled at, had horrible things said to them or about them in the name of Jesus by any pastor, any leader, any Christian leader, any Christian or church. I am so sorry. Those things are never okay. I'm crushed at how so many people can misrepresent Jesus in so many ways 
regardless of their intentions, their actions have made the distance between us greater, not closer. In church, it is okay for us to not be okay with some of the way that people have taken a stand for truth on this issue. Second, I believe that some, if not a lot of the complexity and cultural uncertainty around this issue that we're facing in and out of the church is to do with the, at times, fear, silence, and lack of clarity of those who have come before us. Honestly, the church has not done historically a great job around this issue. So we must. So we must, for the sake of today and for the sake of tomorrow, we have to know what the Bible says is right and true and be confident in the power of God's intention regardless of earthly tensions. Proverbs 28.1 says that the wicked flee though no one pursues them, but the righteous are as bold as lions. Our boldness is connected not to our volume, but our confidence. And our confidence is connected to our biblical clarity. And honestly, for some of us, we do not feel bold at all when this comes up in life or in a conversation because we're not clear about what the Bible says. And so, what does it say? What, what does the Bible say? Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now let's pause. Because how many of you have heard something along the lines that these scriptures in the Old Testament don't apply to us anymore? Or have you heard that there are parts specifically in the book of Leviticus that we actually don't follow today? An example would be Leviticus 11. The whole chapter is a chapter on what meat is clean and unclean. And like what happens if you touch an unclean animal like a pig or, or even pig's skin because you then would become unclean. So we read Leviticus 11, and none of us draw the conclusion from Leviticus 11 that we should say no to bacon. So why would I care about just some of the standards set in the Old Testament and not all? Well, Understand that back in the day, the guide for the people of God on how to live, eat, function, and the bar 
of how to behave as God's chosen people, as well as a clear roadmap on how to stay aware of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, the people of God were given what is called the law. Now, it helps us understand the law when we put the law in three important but distinct categories. The moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. Moral laws are based on the holiness of God. His righteousness, his justice, his unchangingness. These are the laws that focus on how we should live and act. They hold in them standards of righteousness and give us clarity on what is unrighteous. And so the laws that fall into the category of what should we do, how should we live, those are known as moral laws. And then there's ceremonial laws. The ceremonial laws focused around regaining right standing with God. Now, these laws included sacrifices and other ceremonies regarding uncleanliness and and also remembrances like celebrations and feasts and festivals that the people of Israel would observe. That the ceremonial laws are also the laws that have specific regulations meant to be distinguishing factors for the people of Israel, God's people, from those who lived around them. Like their diet, what they ate, the clothes they wore, how they cut their hair, observing the Sabbath and circumcision. These laws would fall within the bucket of ceremonial laws. And then you have the civil laws. And these were the laws like don't murder, don't steal. These are the laws that govern a healthy society. So when Jesus in Matthew 5.18 said this, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. He's saying that the law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law will never be abolished. The standards of right and righteous are unchanging. But the ceremonial parts of the law, the law that restores us to God will be fulfilled in him. Meaning that our standing with God and the cleansing of the things in all of us that make us unclean in his eyes are washed away at the cross when Jesus died and conquered death. When we receive him, the stains that sin has left on us is washed from us. Romans 8.3 puts this this way. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And he so condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
The ceremonial aspects of the law, the things that were put in place for us to regain right standing with God when we sinned is no longer needed because Jesus was the final sacrifice, the sin offering for all of us so that in him and through him, we can have right standing with the father who sent him. Are you tracking with what I'm saying? So Jesus's sacrifice erased our sin, but Jesus's sacrifice did not erase heaven's standard. That said, when we're building good theology, and theology is our study of God, our understanding of God, when we're building good theology, It's never a good practice to build a belief system off of one solo scripture. And although Leviticus 18 is crystal clear, this moral law, homosexuality, is a sin. We don't just encounter this truth in one place. Good theology is built on the back of understanding the narrative of Scripture and is anchored in biblical consistency. Meaning that from the beginning of the Bible, when God created Adam and Eve and blessed their family to multiply and to thrive, this strengthens our understanding and belief of God's stance on this Issue Because even though homosexuality is not mentioned in Genesis, the intention of God is. Therefore, the narrative of the Bible matters in shaping our thoughts, not just on this issue, but on all issues. The narrative is built on biblical consistency. So when we read then in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Or again, in 1 Timothy 1.8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinner, for the unholy and profane, and for those who strike their father and mother, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, prejudicers, with else, sorry, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. These scriptures serve to strengthen the biblical clarity on this issue. The Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. Homosexuality is not God's best for us. But hear me, our biblical clarity should not lead to combat 
but to compassion. Our biblical clarity should not lead to combat, but compassion. Homosexuality is a sin. And so is committing adultery. And so is premarital sex. And so is watching porn. And so is cheating. And so is lying. It might feel different to the person who's in it, but it doesn't change how we are to respond to it. Galatians 1, or excuse me, Galatians 6 verse 1 says this. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Colossians 3.12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Clarity leads to compassion, not combat. And, And I think this is where at times we have really missed it. There are people who call themselves Christians and in the name of Jesus are mean, hateful, hold up signs at gay pride parades that read, God hates you. That's not compassion. That's combat. We have Christians refusing to bake cakes, take pictures for weddings of homosexual couples who are getting married. And I know this is going to step on some toes. Just so you know, I'm totally fine with that. Would you bake the cake or take the picture of a couple that's living together? It's having premarital sex? Addicted to pornography? Is that even on the questionnaire? Is that a part of the interview? It's not. So can we all just acknowledge that we've all been a little hypocritical on this issue? And that hypocrisy has fed chaos and it has not led to compassion. Like, just for a minute, What would happen if you went there not in fear, but in expectation that God has put you in that place for a purpose? To be a beacon of light, to bring hope and clarity, clothed in compassion, in kindness, in humility, in gentleness, in patience. Look, let's let Let's let God be God and let's just be Jesus to people. Which brings me back to where we started this morning, right at that tension of how do we be loving and not affirming. And to help us navigate this, I want to lean into a story in Luke 7 verse 36. 
And what's happening in this passage is Jesus has been invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you might not know what a Pharisee is. Now, a Pharisee was a religious leader that distinguished themselves by the strict following of all the Jewish laws and traditions. So you could say this. This is a great description of a Pharisee. They were crystal clear but they were not compassionate. Their clarity led them to combat. Their clarity did not lead them to compassion. And in Luke 7, Jesus is sitting around a table with these religious leaders and a woman, uninvited, busts into the dining room and does the unthinkable. Let's read. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Can I just, just for a side note, understand this. Clarity is a magnet for those who are seeking transformation. This woman heard that Jesus was at a place and she stopped at nothing to get to him. Not because he was affirming, but because he was loving. So she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisees who have invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman this is. She is a sinner. Can you hear the tension? How how do I be loving and not affirming? What is Jesus doing? The Pharisee is confused about who Jesus is and he's lost in how he can be loving and kind and accepting but still be a man of God, a leader, a rabbi. He's like, well, then he must not be that. Jesus senses this, and he says, let me tell you a story. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both of them. Which one of them will love him more? Simon, the Pharisee who had invited Jesus over for dinner, replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? That question is more than a question. Jesus is showing Simon, when he looked at this woman, he did not see her, he just saw the sin in her. But Jesus is showing us in this question 
what our first step is in understanding how to be loving and not affirming. It's to see the person. To echo what we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks, it's to look for the image of God in them, to see them, to see them the way that God sees them. And Jesus is asking Simon, do you see her or do you just see the sin that is in her? And then he goes on and he says, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water to wash my feet. And she wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing me. You didn't put oil on my head and she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now listen to verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Do you see that Jesus' compassion did not stop his clarity? Jesus' compassion for this woman did not stop his clarity of what this woman was doing. She was not living a righteous life. Her lifestyle did not reflect God's best for her. And so he acknowledged the sin in her and then he forgave her. There was a now and go and change. There was a connectedness to his compassion for her and the grace that he gave her. Compassion leads to relationship and relationship leads to gentle clarity. And yes, clarity hurts. The gospel is divisive. Clarity brings hard moments, difficult, awkward, emotionally charged conversations. They can't be escaped. But when our clarity is clothed in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, we're setting the table for God to do a miracle. And that is the answer for all of us. We don't see transformation happen in any of us through winning an argument. I wasn't changed by somebody yelling at me and telling me I needed to change. It was God touching me by the power of the Holy Spirit and setting me free. It's a miracle. And if you're here this morning, or if you're going to be watching this online and you struggle with same-sex attraction, can I just say your fight is not your destiny? I've talked to some of you. I know that the tension that you feel and the pain that you've endured is so real. 
And you have culture telling you at every turn that your anatomy is not your destiny. But I just want to say to you that you were made in the image of God. There's hope for you. I've never been in your shoes or personally felt your temptation, but I do understand temptation. And I want you to know that you're not alone in this fight. We're in it with you. And I wholeheartedly believe 1 John 1, 9, when it says that if we confess our sin, that he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. When Jesus did what he did, when he lived in a broken human body, tempted in every way that we are tempted, he understands your fight. But, but he did not sin so that in his death and in his resurrection, no matter what we're facing, no matter how heavy it feels, no matter how confusing it seems, no matter how lost we might be, let me just declare over all of us, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old has gone. The new is here your fight might never leave you but your destiny is clear first corinthians 10 13 says that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you're tempted he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it your fight is not your destiny but it's an opportunity to see the strength of God provide a way out for you Our clarity leads to compassion. Our clarity leads to gentleness. Our clarity does not lead to combat. Because again, the intention of God is that all people would come to the saving knowledge of the truth. All people, not some people, all people. That's the intention of God. That's the invitation to us as the church to be a community that says that we're with you, Jesus. We want all people to be saved. So we're going to be crystal clear on God's intention and we are going to be rock solid in our compassion so that we can be a place where people can be restored. Clarity leads to compassion. 
clarity does not lead to combat. And so we get to go and love people, love our neighbors, not just our neighbor, not just the one that's easy to love, not just the one that wants us to love them, but to love our neighbor clothed in humility, in gentleness, in compassion, in kindness, believing that when we're Jesus to people, God will do what only God can do. Amen? Can you stand to your feet?